0: Of course, uh, I think everyone's aware of the fact that today is a special service for us. It's, a, it's an ordination service. And uh, we will be adding on to the end of our ordinary service a uh, time of uh, ordaining four new uh, elders who have been elected to serve in our congregation. And so today, instead of... Uh, Preaching from 2 Corinthians, as we have been walking through 2 Corinthians, we're going to be preaching a sermon crafted for this occasion, and uh, it's going to be from the book of Revelation, and as in chapter 1. And as we start, I just want to reiterate something that I said a few weeks ago, that I want, that I expressed an, an apology to the congregation for my neglect of the book of Revelation over the years sort of avoided it because it. it uh, every time I tried to dive into it it just seemed uh, so confusing and so difficult that I just pretty much stayed away from it and uh, and yet now that I'm studying it with some help with some guidance with uh, the teaching of men who have really given their lives to studying it it's. Uh, I realize that it's not as uh, confusing as I thought and it has so many important things to say to us And I feel bad that I haven't, that there's a a nutrient or a part of the scriptures that really hasn't been incorporated very much into my teaching and preaching over the years. And uh, so I want to give you a warning also that you're going to be hearing a lot from the book of Revelation over the next probably few years because uh, as I study it, it'll take a while, and... um, and I'll be using it not so much to do a series on the Book of Revelation, but you'll find you'll see it used here and there in sermons and and occasional sermons like today from the Book of Revelation. Another thing about today's sermon is that unlike our study of Second Corinthians, we're going to take a big portion of the Scriptures this morning, and uh, we're going to read. Nine, ten verses of Revelation 1, but even bigger than that, we're going to talk about the whole book of Revelation a little bit. So, um, for those of you who are tired of the magnifying glass, um, we'll, uh, you maybe get to go on an airplane ride today. Okay, our passage is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his waist. The hairs of his head were white, his, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So this is how the book of Revelation begins. I mean obviously there's eight verses before this but this is the beginning of the vision part of his book which is which really continues through the rest of it. John says, the Apostle John who wrote this says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That is he was in the prophetic spirit. He, he knew that God was showing him things and speaking to him and telling him secrets for him to declare to others. And he hears a voice while he's in the Spirit telling him to write down a vision in a book and send it to these seven churches of Asia, modern-day Turkey, the ones listed in the passage that we read. And so he turns around and he sees that the one speaking to him is the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's never mentioned, but it's pretty clear from the description that it's the Lord Jesus. Standing among seven golden lampstands. And while Jesus stands among these seven gold lampstands, he is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. So Jesus is dressed like a priest. This vision would have made any Jew immediately think about the priest who serves in the temple tending, among other things, to the lampstand that was in the temple. You see, the holy, in the holy place of the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, there was a golden lampstand. And one of the jobs of the priest was to attend to this lampstand, to trim the wicks, to keep it filled with oil, to make sure it stayed lit. And now Jesus is the priest in this vision tending to the lampstands like a gardener tending to a garden. Now two verses later in verse 20, which we didn't read, we're told that the seven lampstands symbolize the seven churches that are mentioned. So this is a vision of Jesus tending the seven churches referred to in verse 11. Priests had special tools with which they could work on the lampstands. And so if Jesus is here standing among the lampstands to work to maintain them, what tool does he use? A double-edged sword, which is his holy word. That's why, in the vision, the double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. But the Old Testament priest tended only one lampstand not seven so what's with the seven lampstands well in the old testament god had only one people the jews but now in the new testament the salvation of god has been opened up to all nations you see the number seven here is not by accident this is the favorite number of the book of Revelation. And it's been influenced by the Old Testament usage of the number seven. In the Old Testament, seven was used to denote fullness, thoroughness, completeness. Originating from the creation story, where God cr- created in six days, and there was then a seventh day of God's rest, completing the week So the seven churches here in Revelation 1 represent all churches, not just these particular seven churches. Each lampstand represents a church, but the seven together represent all the churches. And each lampstand is made up of seven branches. If you can go back in Exodus 25 and see this, there's a picture I have I don't know if you can get the picture up here, but uh, that picture is uh, of a priest with a uh, lampstand. Um, and the idea it, like the yeah, see, like a Jewish menorah, that's really came from the Old Testament, with a priest tending to him to it. And you see, it's got seven candles or seven lights on the one lampstand and so just as the seven lampstands refer to the all the churches it would seem to me logical to conclude that the seven branches of each lampstand refer to all the people in each church you remember the story of Pentecost And this strange phenomenon that happened when they were together and they started speaking in tongues and the wind blew. And it said a tongue of fire came and rested on the head of each of God's people. Well, here's the picture right here. Each person with the Holy Spirit on him. That's the different branches of the lampstand. And... Each lampstand has a cluster of these people in it. That's their churches of people, each aflame with the Holy Spirit, hopefully. So, this vision then is Jesus, the high priest of our faith, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, tending to his churches. How does he do that? Well, that's where, what chapters 2 and 3 are all about. Chapters 2 and 3 are Jesus' words to the seven churches. If you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters that Jesus wrote to each of the seven churches. And in these letters, he has things to say to these churches. You see, Jesus dictates to John a letter to the church, to each church, affirming them, correcting them, challenging them, even warning them. This is the double edged sword that's coming out of the Lord's mouth. His word. Through His word, He is tending to the churches. He's speaking to them to help them to burn brightly. For after all, they are the light of the world. And these churches need a lot of work. They need a lot of input. They need a lot of correction. They need a lot of encouragement. Just like the seven individual, just like individual Christians, so the seven churches written about here, they're a mixed bag. The first and last of the seven churches that he writes to are in such serious sin that he warns them that if they don't make some changes, he's going to remove their lampstand. There are a lot of good things happening in the churches which Christ commended the churches for. Their toil and their patient endurance. And when, I, when you, I'm going through these lists, I'm going to sort of summarize the positive things he says to the churches, the negative things he says to the churches. Realize that most of these things he only says to one church. But I'm listing them all, all together. Their toil and their patient endurance. They're not growing weary. They're not tolerating those who are evil. The fact that they, are, they tested false apostles and found them to be wanting... Found them false, that they hate teachings that God hates, they're enduring tribulation, poverty, slander from unbelieving Jews, that they hold fast the name of Christ and do not deny the faith, they have love and faith, they serve the Lord, they keep God's word. But he also has a number of corrections that he brings to the churches in these seven letters. They've abandoned the love for Christ which they had at first. He says that to the first church, Ephesus. They've put up with those who hold to false teaching, including the false prophetess Jezebel, who is teaching and seducing met my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. They have learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Whatever that means. They have the reputation of being alive, but they're actually dead. Their works are not complete in the sight of God. And then in the last letter... He says, you're neither hot nor cold, so because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So the lampstands, you see, are definitely in need of the high priest's attention and repair. The one who cleansed the temple. And you remember the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, which occurs in all the Gospels, when he comes and he throws down the tables and drives them out with a whip out of the temple because they're turning the the house of God into a place for money and, and profit and business. The Lord who did that is still in that business. He's still confronting, in Revelation 2 and 3, still confronting his churches with their issues, with their problems, with their sins, with their failures, as well as affirming and encouraging them in the things that they're doing right. Now, let's leave Revelation 1 through 3 and take a little trip to the very end of Revelation. This morning, our last song was about the new Jerusalem. Perfectly planned by the Lord. Because that comes from Revelation 21 and 22. This wonderful vision we have at the end of Revelation. Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be with a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb." And the city has no need of sun or moon or. Sh- sh- I'm sorry. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. and there will be no night there. And so we see that the book of Revelation, the beginning of it and the end of it are like two bookends chapters 1 and 3 or chapter 2 and 3 in particular the church as it is in the present age chapter 21 and 22 the church as it will be on that final day chapter 2 and 3 are where we are now chapter 21 and 22 are where we are going This is greatly encouraging for those who have to live in the reality of chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. In the age of the imperfect church, church racked with problems and weaknesses, some good things are happening, but there's a lot that's messed up. And it's been that way since the first century when this book was written. It isn't new that the church is messed up. It's been messed up since it started. Even in the book of Acts, it's messed up. Some people like to go back to Acts 2, thinking that here we find it in its, you know, perfect form. And yes, in Acts 2, there's nothing about any of the sins or problems yet, but... You're going back to the first few days of the church. And sure, there were problems, but those aren't what's advertised in Acts 2. But the point is, it doesn't take very many verses before problems start cro- cropping up in the church. That's just the way the church is. So, what is Jesus doing in all this? He's working to affirm the good and repair the bad. With his word. If a given church proves unfixable, then eventually it may be time to give up on it. Jesus says he'll remove the lampstand, and this has happened to many churches through history. Jesus sometimes loses patience with the church, but he never loses patience with the church at large but the church will not always be where it is now that's our hope and our joy in spite of its present troubles and failures the church has a glorious destiny one day it will be united and spotless and glorious and sinless and beautiful beyond our imagination that's where this train is going And that's why I'm going to stay on the train. And I hope you will too. These passages in Revelation help us to see what Jesus is doing in his churches today. Jesus isn't just working on individual Christians. He's working on churches. In fact, it, it, interestingly, in this vision in Revelation chapter 1, there's no place for miscellaneous churches that aren't a part of a lampstand. There's no, okay, well here's the seven lampstands, and then there's a box over here of miscellaneous lights that haven't, we haven't found for a lampstand yet. That's not in the vision. Each Christian is on a lampstand. That's the way it's supposed to be. I know is the first part of each letter. When Jesus starts to address each church, he says, I know your work. I know your trials. Jesus knows his churches. He knows what they're going through. He knows where they're failing. And not only does he know... But he has something to say to them. He has instructions. He has encouragements. He has a word for his churches. That's what we see here. Churches, you see, are not just earthly institutions which some people find helpful for their faith. Churches have a heavenly identity. That's what this vision is all about. Churches are known and talked about in the heavenly places. Jesus doesn't just have a personal relationship with each of his people. He does. He has a relationship with each of his churches. And he's communicating to them and pleading with them. And he is encouraging them. And he is... Correcting them. But how is Jesus speaking to his churches? Where, for instance, is our message? Where is the letter to GPC from Jesus? Like there was to Ephesus and Thyatira and Pergamum and Smyrna. Well, it's pretty clear that these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, are not really just to that church. If they were, why was such great effort given to preserve them so that we would have them? They're for us too, as is the letter to the Romans, and the letters to the Corinthians, and the letters to the Galatians, and the Thessalonians. These are all letters for us as well as for the original ones that they were sent to. In fact, in the end of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 16, there's instruction. He says, look, after you get this letter, read it and then pass it along to the next church and make sure you get and read the letter that I sent to them as well. You see, these letters are not just for that church. They're for all the churches. And it's our job to be paying attention to Christ's word. He's speaking to us. We need to humble ourselves and listen to what he's saying. And you know, different churches are different. There's... Different things that the church struggles with and different portions of scripture that are more relevant to them. But they, we need to know the scriptures as a whole to be able to discern that. And that's part of what the ministry of the word is all about. With, and that's why we elect leaders of our church. But it, it isn't just the leaders of our church. All of us have a responsibility to know the word and seek to apply it to our lives and to our Church. There are false ideas to be resisted. Teachers who need to be rejected. Glorious truths of the gospel which need to be cherished and proclaimed. Truths that the church needs to fight for and stand up for even in the face of a hostile society. And there are truths that the church needs to fight for and stand up for even when they're unpopular in the sight of other churches and this is what the role of the ministry is all about and why we have elders in our church helping Christians and the church as a whole to be faithful in the face of great pressures seeking to help each member burn brightly with the light of Christ it, it, it's almost comical in one sense, such imperfect men that Christ is using as his tools to try to help perfect the church. But that's part of the beauty and the irony of the whole thing. That's what Christ chooses to use, such inferior tools. And when the job gets done, then we all say, it's not the tools. It's the Christ who's wielding the tools, who does such a splendid work with such imperfect tools. So many things can go wrong. So many things have gone wrong. So many things will go wrong. But it's not us. It's not by us. It's by Christ. It's by Christ. It's by Christ, and He carries us along. If there's an invisible keeper, an invisible tender to the, this congregation, just like every congregation, and if, and if He weren't the one building, if He weren't the one correcting, if He weren't the one channeling and directing, every one of us would be in the ditch. Every one of us, every church would be a train wreck. And so we seek his favor upon us. We don't elect elders thinking that this will solve our problem. No, far from it. Elders can be problems themselves if Christ isn't in it. We seek the Lord as we elect elders and put them into office. And now uh, we are going to uh, move to the Lord's Supper. Where we celebrate what Christ has done for us. How it's not by our becoming what we should be. Though we will become what we should be in the end. It's not by our reforming our lives, though Christ will reform our lives gradually and in the end perfectly. It's by grace. It's by Christ. It's by his work. And this is a celebration of that, for we partake of his body, the body that was broken on the cross. We partake of the wine, which represents his blood spilled at the cross let us pray Lord Jesus you are a matchless savior and there is no other place for us to go lord for only you have the words of eternal life and only you open the door to our father's to our father's grace and our father's access We thank you, Lord, for all you have done and pray that now we would experience intimate fellowship with you through this sacrament that you have told us to keep performing until the day that you return. We pray in your precious name, O Jesus. Amen.